0: Uh, Lord, now we turn to your word, for in it we find the truth. We find in it the reminder of who we are. Uh, You are the creator. We're your creation. You have made all of these things, and you've made us for yourself. And though we are rebels, by your grace, you sent your son to die in our place, to take our sins and to crush them, and to give us a means by which we can be reconciled to a holy God through repentance and faith. Thank you for this grace, and we pray, Lord, that that grace would motivate us and animate us to live lives of worship and obedience. So teach us now from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, As you know, there are a lot of different ways uh, to teach. Uh, We have a lot of teachers, a lot of educators in our church, and so there's a degree to which I'm preaching to the choir here in in the beginning of my sermon, but sometimes the choir needs preaching too, right? Good teachers will vary their teaching methods. Um, If all you get is the same thing, the same style, over and over and over again, uh, you start feeling a little like uh, the dogs here in this Far Side cartoon, right? Oh boy, dog food again. Somehow, our dog always seems happy with dog food. That's plenty fine. He's pretty content. But Uh, when I first started off as a preacher and as a teacher, I was um, pretty committed to sort of a deductive method of teaching where you make a proposition, you make a statement, and then you show the evidence and prove it and show it and so forth. And early on, I was having some difficulty with certain passages. And uh, later on, taking a, a, a homiletics or a preaching class, it was kind of shown to me where I was running into a problem. Some of the passages in Scripture are not deductive. Some of them are inductive. That is, they start with questions leading to answers rather than just proposition followed up by evidence. And I had to learn to follow the contours of the text and allow the text to shape uh, the shape of my teaching. But the best teachers, right, they will, they will add to their instruction, Stories, we all love a good story. Illustrations, quotations by A.W. Tozer and others. (laughs) Object lessons, word pictures, examples, restatement, repetition, 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 alliteration, humor, fiery phrases, and the occasional cat joke, right? These are just some of the things that uh, good teachers will fold into their style to kind of season and to spice up their instruction. As the philosopher Mary Poppins said, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, right? Um, Can I just say this? Jesus was a great teacher. Can I get an amen to that? Jesus was a phenomenal teacher. He's certainly much more than this. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is very God very God. But he was also a phenomenal teacher. He is the smartest man to ever live, the most influential teacher in human history. And of course, he is much more than that. But at this particular moment in his teaching ministry, his style shifts, and he begins to teach by parable. And we get to see some of the brilliance, not just of what he said, but even how he goes about saying it. And so if you look back a chapter in Mark chapter 3, starting off verse 22, we kind of see this moment where his style of teaching shifted, and we see the cause for it. Uh, The context kind of helps us understand why it is that he begins to teach with parables. So verse 22, it says this, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. So here we see kind of a cause and result incident. We see uh, sort of their persistent hard-heartedness towards him. Uh, which Jesus sort of dubbed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then we see the way he morphs his teaching uh, to kind of, in some senses, to communicate still, but also to um, conceal some of his revelation from them. And we'll get into this a little bit more. But I want to back up and hit that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit just a little bit in case some of you missed it, because that's a Tough phrase, a lot of questions around that. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not just having said a negative thing about the Spirit on one occasion or something like this, but it is the consistent, persistent, hard-heartedness that rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, which the Holy Spirit is trying to bring into our lives and thus shutting the door on his ministry and therefore blaspheming him, leaving us in unrepentance. And that's what the religious leaders have done here. They have seen the miracles of Jesus. They've seen his healings. They've seen his deliverance of people from demons. And yet they are callously denying the obvious work of the Holy Spirit and attributing it instead to Satan. They've closed their hearts and their minds towards him. So again, this isn't just an off-handed comment that's derogatory towards the Holy Spirit. It is a prevailing disposition of their heart such that they have shut the door on Christ, and by virtue of doing that, have blasphemed the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the battle lines have been drawn. And so, as Jesus begins to teach in this kind of a setting where they are now plotting to kill him, he teaches in code, if you will, or he uses parables. In the other synoptic gospels in Matthew and Luke, uh, we see when Jesus shifts um, into teaching in parables there. The same same catalyst is there. It's conflict that kind of serves uh, to mark that change. And so at first, we just get a few mini parables by Jesus, right? We get this, he starts talking about binding a strong man before you loot the house, and a house divided against itself cannot fall. But then in Mark, we get this rapid succession uh, of well-developed parables. And so today, I want to take a look at... uh, our passage and parables with four questions, and that's what we're going to answer this morning. If you have your notes, um, pull those out. I think they'll be helpful for you. So the first question is, what is a parable? And then secondly, we're going to look at, what's the purpose of a parable? Third, why use a parable in this particular instance? And then last of all, the work you're going to do yourself is, what does this parable have to teach me? Okay? So first question, what is a parable? Uh, it has been said that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning or an earthly story with kind of a spiritual meaning, if you will. A parable is a way of, of instruction by comparison. It means literally to set two things uh, side by side and to sort of teach by, by way of comparison. Uh, for those of you who are educators and, and you're aware of sort of cognitive theory or pedagogical theory, teaching theory, how we learn something, uh, we can't just conceive of something entirely new. We don't do that. For example, if I told you, I want you to think of a shkolf. okay? Everybody got it? A scholf. And in case you're unclear, let me help you. The color of a scholf is florgen, and a Florigen Scholf moves by scruting. So, you ever got this creature in your mind? No. Uh, and you would probably sit there and think, Eric's been reading Tolkien again, <laughs> which is true. I have been. Um, we don't conceive of something entirely new, we learn things by what we know and bridging something unknown to it. We expand our learning. That's sort of pedagogical theory or cognitive theory, and parables are really helpful to doing that. Parables are also uh, really important for a largely illiterate culture, a culture that didn't get to carry around the text the way you and I do. Can I just remind you of an incredible pr- privilege that you have, that the Word of God can be held in your hands, copy of the Word of God in your hands, whether it's on your phone or in a bound version or in, under the seat in front of you. What a privilege we have to have the Word of God with us. But you know, early church, first century world, they didn't get to carry around the text. You know, Maybe they had access to a scroll in the synagogue. But the way they carried it around was by memorization. In fact, kids would often, before they were 13, were meant to learn the Torah, to memorize it, which is part of the reason we have an Awana program here is to help kids memorize the scripture. There's value in carrying it around with you that way in your heart. But they would carry around the scriptures through memorization, Through song and through story or through parables. So, parables were important really to the early church in this way. Uh, Think about it a different way. You could tell your kids, hey, listen, don't pretend that you're hurting or in trouble when you're not. And if you tell that to your kid, they're going to be like, you know, that's just going to ricochet right off their head. That's not even going in one ear, right? It's not even breaking the threshold. But if you tell your child the story about the boy who cried wolf, well, that might land, right? They may, they may, hold, on to, they may hold on to that. They may hold on to that. Um, and so parables kind of have a way of doing something like that. Usually a parable uh, answers a question, a question that is either asked or it may be assumed Sometimes when you read the text, you look at it, and and the the question may not be explicitly asked, uh, but it's almost like a question hanging in the room. And then Jesus will sort of speak to it uh, with a parable. Also, while there are different kinds of parables, and they may have some different intentions, most of the time, most of Jesus' parables uh, are intended to help us understand the kingdom of God, right? You'll see so many times a parable begin with the words, the kingdom of God is like, right? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure in a field. The kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price. Okay, second question. What is the purpose of a parable? Well, there's sort of a twofold purpose, as I, as I uh, said a few moments ago. First of all, to reveal something, but uh, especially to those who have a soft, tender heart to understand it, those who will listen, But Secondly, it's to conceal, and that may surprise you a little bit, Uh, but it's especially to conceal from those who may be hard-hearted or malicious. Um, There's a couple thoughts on why uh, you might conceal something or conceal revelation from those who are hard-hearted. I'll give you two of them just for your, your own thinking and contemplation. One would be so that you don't give your critic any ammunition. That's fairly obvious. The second one was interesting. Some speculate that Jesus concealed revelation from those who were hard-hearted so that he would not give them, in a sense, more judgment, more revelation that they would have refused to be judged by. Interesting. I don't really know, but uh, interesting to think about. But primarily, and maybe most importantly, a parable is told in order to elicit a response to elicit a response. It's to say something in such a provocative way that we know what it is that we need to do. We know our response. We have been properly provoked, which is why the title of the sermon here is A Sharp Poke in the Eye. That's what a parable is. A country pastor noticed that Tom had been missing from the church for several weeks now. Concerned about him and about his spiritual health, he drove out to the dusty road to Tom's cabin on a crisp autumn morning. The pastor knew that Tom was a man of few words and that fellowship with other people was uncomfortable for him, so he would have to communicate with Tom delicately or risk pushing him further into isolation. As the pastor crested the hill, he got his first glimpse of Tom's cabin neatly situated in the quiet, frosted valley. He could see smoke coming out of the chimney, which gave him an idea. Getting out of his truck, the pastor could see Tom waiting on the porch with a pipe clenched in his teeth, getting a first look at his visitor. Without words, the men shook hands, and the pastor followed Tom into the cabin. Tom brought over some warm biscuits, some jam, and some coffee, and the two men ate in silence. That sounds pretty good this morning, actually. (laughs) The pastor, rising to deliver his message, instead went over to the fireplace and with a pair of iron tongs retrieved a hot coal, setting it conspicuously on the hearth by itself alone. The pastor then returned to his seat, finished his coffee, and after several minutes went back over to the now cool coal, picked it up with his bare hand and showed it to Tom and tossed it back into the fire. The pastor dusted off his hands, tipped his hat and headed for the door. Tom broke the silence. I'll see you in church next Sunday, preach. (laughs) That's a parable, right? That's a parable. Quiet Tom gets the message. He knew what it was that he had to do he knew his response. He had been properly and creatively poked in the eye. It's not so much that critical information had been revealed, but a critical response had been called for. A parable has a way of coming in the side door and sneaking up on you and therefore getting through your normal defenses. So our third question, why use a parable uh, in this instance, why use one here? The disciples had the same question, so you're right on pace there asking that question. Verse 10. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him, uh, asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Kind of a record scratch there. Like what? I actually thought that was the point. You know, aren't things shared and taught and revealed and preached and proclaimed so that people might turn and repent and be forgiven. So what is this about here? We'll get to that in a second. First of all, we've already noted the the backdrop of conflict here, and therefore maybe Jesus need to conceal some things from his critics again, not to give them ammunition, or perhaps not to give them uh, even more judgment for denying more revelation. So parables are used by Jesus, kind of like speaking in code. Uh, we do the same thing in our homes, in our, with our families, with our, with our kids, with our little ones, right? If you've got little ones, after dinner, feel pretty satisfied, but you got a hankering for something sweet, something cold and creamy and sweet. And dad might look over to mom and say, what if we went and uh, got some I-C-E-C-R-E-A-M? And the kids are looking around like they're spelling again, right? This is code. We're revealing something to one, but we're concealing it from another. Although that doesn't work very long because if your kids are like ours, those are some of the first words they learn to spell, right? You spell ice cream and they know. Uh, maybe the only word they learned to spell before that is cat. And of course, that's a mistake. But this is what Jesus is doing. He's revealing to somebody. He's concealing to others, a parable is a way of kind of holding the truth just out of easy arm's reach. It's, it's right here. It's here. And it's a way of putting it there so that the person who is hungry for the truth will reach for it, will respond to it, will be blessed by it, rather than just being spoon-fed, unwanted, and unappreciated messages. During World War I, the Army was in need of a highly skilled communicator adept with Morse code for a delicate mission. So an advertisement was placed in the Chicago newspaper asking candidates to come and to apply. Dozens of men and women showed up with resumes and credentials in hand. They each took a seat in the noisy lobby, each waiting their turn to be called uh, to interview and to demonstrate their proficiency. One young woman arrived a bit late and looked quite frazzled, but she took her seat among uh, the others. After waiting for only a minute or two, she rose and she went into the interviewer's office without being called. Two minutes later, an aide emerged from that same office to announce to the room full of waiting applicants that the position had been filled. As it turns out, part of the noise that was in the room was an operator pecking out in Morse code, if you can hear and decipher this message, then come on into the office and take the position you're hired. <laughs> and a parable is like this. The message is there for the taking if you will hear it, if you will listen, if you will lean in. In fact, parables often begin with the word, listen. Listen. And the word listen is often peppered into them. And they frequently close, like our parable this morning closes, with these words, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now let me ask the difficult, or address the difficult question here in in verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, otherwise they may turn and be forgiven. Right? What is this with this? So that they might be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. That sounds tough. Notice, first of all, in your Bible that this is a quotation. You'll see a little letter, a little footnote next to it, drop down to the bottom, and it tells you this passage comes from where? This comes from Isaiah. It's is a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. And if you were with us this last year or a year ago, you got a chance to go through Isaiah. Hopefully you remember a little bit, a little bit of Isaiah. Isaiah. In case you don't, the prophet Isaiah, and this is chapter 6 that it's referring to, which is the chapter where he is commissioned to the Lord's work, to be a prophet to Israel. And he is sent to deliver a message to hard-hearted Judah, who despite the warnings of God has continued in their rebellion and their idolatry and their sinful pattern. Caution has come again and again and again. And neglect and disobedience for God's word has come again and again and again. And so Isaiah is called to go and to proclaim to them that judgment is coming. The Lord will discipline and punish their rebellion for its persistence, for their unwillingness to turn their hearts. And he's going to do it through the evil nation of Babylon. And that is the commission that Isaiah receives. That's kind of a bummer, right? Here's a tough word. You're going to go and deliver this. In other words, in that context, God is not sending his word to them to turn them furthermore from their ways or to cause them or to lead them to repentance because the moment of repentance is past. In a sense, we might use the phrase, and this is a hard one to say, they were past the point of no return. Judgment was coming. Again, in our own families, we might experience this. Let's say we're at the dinner table. This isn't the ice cream moment. This is a different moment. This is obstinate Billy who will not eat his food. And he's hard-hearted and he's locked up and he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. He's not going to do, do it. You're working on him. You're working on him. You're working on him. And finally you say, Billy, that's it. You're going to go and time out for the remainder of the day. You start to remove him from the table to take him up to his room. And then he says, okay, okay, I'll eat it. That's not a change of heart. That's a change of behavior. But it's not a change of heart. In a sense, it's too little, too late. And God does the same thing here with Israel. The punishment is coming. God did the same thing uh, with Pharaoh, if you remember this story. First of all, Pharaoh's heart is hard against Israel, uh, in Exodus, the text begins, it says that, and then there became a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, right? Kind of ominous words, who knew not Joseph. And he takes a hardened position against Israel, God's chosen people. He mistreats them. And when they call out for relief, he even makes it worse. Finally, Moses is called to come and rescue God's people. And Moses says, um, this sounds like a tough gig. Why is he going to listen to me? And God basically assures Moses, he says to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So we're kind of told that that will happen at some point in time. Then as we read on in the story in Exodus, we continue to see that when he goes to Pharaoh and says, um, God wants his people back, so let him go. Pharaoh It says that Pharaoh's heart became hard. It doesn't really assign any agency to it. It just says that it became hard. And it says that about three or four times. And then another uh, instance comes up, and there's a change. And then it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it says that three or four times. And then finally, in the end, the last couple of times, it says, and God hardened his heart. And I think what we are meant to see by this progression of hard-heartedness through Pharaoh, through Israel, and now through the Pharisees in this instance, is if our heart is persistently hard, there may be a point of no return. And while that is a hard word and an uncomfortable word, that is the word that I see prevailing in the scriptures. The Pharisees knew the law. They were keepers of the law, teachers of the law, supposed to model the law. They were to watch for and recognize Messiah But Jesus did not fit their mold. He didn't fit into their religious formalism. And so despite the miracles, the healings, the instruction, the deliverance from demons, the demonstration of the Spirit's power, instead, they made up their minds to kill him and basically called him a devil or said that it was the devil in him working. They had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, Steadily rejecting the Spirit's drawing in their life, and now they were to pay the price. The reference to Isaiah, I think, is Jesus' way of drawing upon what I would call divine precedent. This is a way that God may work. Obedience by force is no obedience at all. Or as my old friend Carlos Scott used to say, delayed obedience is disobedience. There's another quotation that says this, the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. And so it is with a parable. A parable is meant to reveal to some, to those whose heart is tender, who will take it, who will receive it, but it is also meant to drive others whose hearts are hardened away. And even when the message, uh, with the message of the parable right in front of us, it reveals sort of the critical issue of the condition of our heart. In other words, here's the poignant question of the day. When the word of God hits the soil of your heart, what happens next? Now, we're going to get to the parable here, but I'm not going to teach it. I'm just going to close by reading it, and I'm going to let the words of Jesus teach. So let me do a couple of things before I do that. First of all, uh, let's clear up the title. This should not be called the parable of the sower. That irritates me. It should be called the parable of the soils. If you're the kind of person who likes to write or take notes in your Bibles, cross out that title. Don't worry, you're not scratching out Scripture. Those titles are editor's editions are the verses in your Bible this should be called the parable of the, so, or of the soils. So if any of you have pulled with Zondervan or crossway, send them a note. That's how this should be referenced. Secondly, having to explain a parable is kind of like having to explain a joke. You ruin it in the explanation. You explain a joke, it wasn't funny. You explain a parable, it wasn't pokey. Okay, to make up a word. So I'm going to close today by simply reading Jesus' parable and letting Jesus have the last word. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, Listen. A farmer went out to sow a seed. It came up, it grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray. Jesus, you're the greatest teacher of all time, the smartest man to ever live. This is your word, this is your parable, We lay our hearts before you. We ask that by the power of the Spirit of God, you would drive this into our hearts for its effect. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.